the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. President Trump in Wisconsin, in Iowa, in Pennsylvania, uh, tackling substantive issues as well as doing the politicking one would expect of a candidate for the President of the United States, 70 days out from the election. And um, for uh, there's a, a lot to discuss, too, on this, too, that, where the intersection of politics and policy, uh, which is omnipresent, but but particularly so with matters like the post office conspiracy theorizing that has reached fever pitch this week, as well as with the running debate over mail in voting, um, not to mention the more pedestrian matters a president may deal with that may not be important nationally to the D.C. press corps, but are important to people in Iowa when it comes to things like help after storms uh, created significant damage. For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined by Ben Williamson. He's the Deputy Assistant to the President, Senior Advisor to the COS, and Senior Communications Advisor. Ben, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me. Well, why don't we start with uh, his um, uh, tromping through the Midwest this week, uh, Wisconsin, Iowa, and Pennsylvania, some uh, different uh, chores at hand in each state. Uh, beginning with Iowa and disaster relief for Cedar Rapids and and surrounding areas after the storms that were inflicted upon uh, that state, that community? Well, it was great to be in Iowa this week. Uh, And and the the way the trip came together was sort of quintessential President Trump. I believe he spoke on the phone with Senator Ernst uh, from Iowa uh, and and decided last minute he wanted to go uh, see the people of Iowa and, and assess things. On his own, we would have been there a day earlier, actually, if, uh, if Secret Service had let him go. But we had to run security protocols, make sure. So, so I think we got there on Tuesday this week. It was, and you're right. It was assessing the situation after the storm went through. Obviously, the people of Iowa have been in our prayers. Uh, the three people that died, uh, and the over 50 that have been injured, I believe. And we're continuing to work with our local teams uh, on the ground. The president signed a disaster relief declaration approving. Uh, funds to to help fix some of the damage that occurred there. We're continuing to work with uh, our teams on the ground and the two uh, senators, as well as uh, Governor Reynolds uh, in Iowa, to make sure that we can provide all the assistance possible uh, to make sure we help uh, Iowans get back on their feet after the storm. Uh, With regard to the ongoing um, race riots, looting, is President Trump thinking about revisiting, dispatching federal law enforcement or even doing something more substantial in cities that uh, continue to be impacted by lawlessness like Portland. I mean, we're three months in in Portland and and there was the promise made by the governor of Oregon there, Kate Brown, that I'm going to send state police to backstop the local police in Portland to bring uh, some 
peace to the residents and businesses in Portland. Well, that hasn't really happened, or at least that peace hasn't been affected. And of course, we have similar problems in other cities around the country. So is this something that he's monitoring in terms of whether or not to uh, intercede with federal resources more aggressively? He is absolutely monitoring, Dan, and it's certainly on the table. I wish I had news to break uh, on your show this morning as far as what we're planning on doing at this point. I don't. But but what I can briefly tell you, uh, Amy, and your listeners, is as far as what we're exactly we're doing to monitor the situation briefly, we actually have a task force set up here at the White House uh, made up of the FBI director, uh, Attorney General Barr, the Department of Homeland Security, the National Guard. They monitor situations like what's occurring in Portland around the country, and they compile a report every day for the chief of staff, my longtime boss, Mark Meadows. And they review it and essentially decide what needs to be done from there. Secretary Wolf has done a great job making sure that we have all the data, making sure that we're monitoring different violent outbreaks across the country. And when we're needed to respond, this president's going to be there. He said consistently he wants local law enforcement to take the lead. He wants state and local governments to be the leaders on that. But if they're not willing to protect their people, he's willing to do it for them. So. No action items right now to announce, but we are certainly monitoring the situation and fully prepared to act if need be. Hey, uh, when you get uh, Christopher Ray, when you're in the same room with him, can you tell him to turn over the documents to Ron Johnson that he's been requesting uh, so that we can get on uh, with that? Can you just can you pass that word over to him about Ron Johnson? I don't I know. If, pass, yeah, yeah. I will pass that word on, and I, w- I would love nothing more. You're preaching to the choir, my friend. Yeah, I'm sure I am. Um, so here's a, um, a, the, the thing about COVID-19 relief, and is there going to be a phase four, or should uh, Americans expect that uh, the president's executive actions from the other week is going to be about it between now and November? We're working hard on that, Dan. Uh, I'm, I'm becoming more and more optimistic that we're going to hit some kind of deal. The speaker uh, did express some openness to sort of stripping down their original demands and going with more relief-tailored items. Uh, the president certainly wants to do things like send stimulus checks, give small businesses financial relief, protect people uh, from evictions. Uh, and we're also certainly looking at things like unemployment insurance. Funding the post office is important to him. He wants to do that, too. Originally, Democrats were set on keeping things like uh, this is the repeal of assault tax on the table, which is obviously a cap on uh, taxes for, for or local taxes for folks making over $200,000, usually in blue states. And things like state and local bailouts, where they send uh, money to state and local governments, they were at about a trillion dollars for that money, which is too high uh, for the president uh, and for Senate and House Republicans. But we're optimistic. We're hopeful that we can hit some kind of a deal. We're going to keep working hard. The president did act, signed, I think, four executive orders. uh, And those orders have done well as far as meeting needs. But at the end of the day, we always want to work through legislation if we can. So we're going to keep coming back to the table, keep trying to work with Democrats and doing our best to deliver relief for the American people. And is he going to make um, uh, school choice central to his messaging on reopening as well as to any sort of deal on phase four COVID-19 relief. I know the Senate proposal, $105 billion for reopening schools, 10% of that for scholarships for families that, uh, you know, at a certain income level, so they could have the same choices as families that are wealthier to send their kids to schools elsewhere if their local school is not going to open. It seems to me this is a, a, a wonderful opportunity to uh, drive this uh, as the teachers unions uh, are exercising their dominion over not just the schools, but 
the fam- the the lives of the families they're supposed to represent. Well, as far as where school choice plays in legislation, we'll see what happens on that. But more importantly, on the broad point, you're absolutely right, Dan. School choice is so critical, especially in this moment where you have different pockets of schools opening up across different states. I love what the president has consistently said from day one on this. He says the money should follow the child. Federal uh, money we send out follow the, chi- follow I, the I, child. And, and, and that's follow the child, some things that people have been saying for 20 years. But I like actually his sort of improvement on it. Money should follow the child, not the union. That, that really yeah. nails it. That sticks the landing. You're absolutely right. And he's been harping on that uh, from day one. The money should follow the child, not the union's. Uh, and that's what we really want to do is make sure that, that we're sending the money where it should go uh, to families that that, uh, that uh, would rather send their child to perhaps a different school than where they're where they're located. The president's always said uh, a classic line, but your zip code shouldn't control the quality of your education. We want to make sure that the parents have the choice of where to send their kids to school and and the money should follow the child from a federal standpoint. So we're, we'll see where that falls. Uh, in legislation, but it's very critical to the president, very critical to this White House, and critical to families all over the country. Uh, is he going to uh, continue to uh, you know beat the rhetorical drum, uh, as it were, for uh, reopening the economy? I, there's there's only so much he can do, or probably even should do, at the at, at the state or local level when it comes to deciding whether this business district opens up or this this one doesn't. Um, but he certainly can use the bully pulpit. Well, for your listeners, there's no one more eager to get the country back open and to get people back to work than this president. He's been aggressive in terms of trying to make it easier for people to get back to work, cutting taxes, removing barriers from small businesses for rehiring, making sure that small businesses have funds to keep afloat while we had to go in a brief lockdown. The president is chomping at the bit to get the economy back open. And I think alongside that, what we can also say is, we can do this safely, folks. We can get back to work in a world where coronavirus exists and do it safely. For, for your listeners, we are so much more and so much better prepared from a federal standpoint to deal with a pandemic now than we were in March and April. It is night and day. The, the cupboard was bare as far as medical equipment, as far as testing supplies, PPE, masks, gloves. That's been changed overnight, essentially. We are now in a much better place from a preparation standpoint to treat something like coronavirus, to manage it. And so we're very confident that we can not only get people back to work, get people back into the economy, into the job market, but do so safely and keep people safe in a world where coronavirus exists until we get a vaccine and can knock it out once and for all. He is Ben Williamson, Deputy Assistant to the President, Senior Advisor to Mark Meadows, Chief of Staff, and Senior Communications Advisor as well. Ben, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate the time. Good to be with you. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Uh, just following our discussion with um, Ben Williamson from White House comms staff. Uh, talked a little bit about it in general terms, but let's get into some of the brass tacks with uh, Joe Biden's nomination acceptance speech on Thursday evening. 
Uh, he seemingly went from uh, plagiarizing Neil Kinnock in a prim- previous presidential effort to plagiarizing Shel Silverstein in this one with his acceptance speech and walking towards the light. If you entrust me with the presidency, I will draw on the best of us, not the worst. I'll be an ally of the light, not the darkness. It's time for us, for we the people, to come together. And make no mistake, united we can and will overcome this season of darkness in America. We'll choose hope over fear, facts over fiction, fairness over privilege. Yeah, those binaries uh, make it easier to get through the speech, even if it's been uh, rehearsed many, many times. Uh, Right, good versus bad, I'm for good, for bad, lightness versus darkness, hope versus anxiety. I mean, this is not exactly heady stuff. Nothing particularly memorable about this, um, but... um, but again, the, the bar was set low for Joe Biden. He talked as well about the four crises I identified. And uh, an oldie but a goodie is back uh, in the top four. And now history has delivered us to one of the most difficult moments America has ever faced. Four, four historic crises, all at the same time. A perfect storm. The worst pandemic in over 100 years. The worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. The most compelling call for racial justice since the 60s. And the undeniable realities and just the accelerating threats of climate change. Mm -hmm. And you got to listen to the voices. Listen, quiet, listen. If you listen closely, you can hear them. And we can pay for these investments by ending loopholes, unnecessary loopholes, and the president's $1.3 trillion tax giveaway to the wealth. They're speaking to the inequity and injustice that has grown up in America. Economic injustice, racial injustice, environmental injustice. I hear their voices. If you listen, you can hear them, too. And whether it's the existential existential threat posed by climate change, the daily fear of being gunned down in school. Uh, Joe can hear the voices. That should have been the headline. Uh, yeah, the daily threat of being gunned down in school. You you won't let them go to school. So I guess we've solved the school violence problem. Nobody's there. Now, we haven't solved the problem of violence on the streets of America where murders are up 25 percent year over year because Joe and his friends don't support the police enforcing the law. There is that. And of course, that was the issue that was notably absent from virtually any commentary other than a complaint about police abuse uh, over the past four days. As far as the uh, Joe Biden, he's a nice guy who will make everybody else nicer, uh, help them get along and uh, will have this return to normalcy, whatever that was pre-President Trump. Uh, Wall Street Journal opined on the Joe Biden we know. It's not like this guy hasn't been around for the last 45 years. He's got a bit of a record. Uh, You have some sense of his strengths, perhaps his personal demeanor, and weaknesses, where to begin. Uh, The uh, Journal Editorial Board writing, there's cause to doubt this happily ever after Trump scenario. And the reasons include the man and his times. Regarding the man... Mr. Biden has never been a politician of strong political convictions. He's a professional partisan Democrat whose beliefs have shifted as the parties have. Right, because that's the only job he's ever had is to be a professional partisan Democrat. 
Biden has no defining message. Can you think of a single policy or even a phrase that identifies what he has stood for in this campaign? The closest might have been, as I mentioned, a return to normalcy, uh, you know, Harding post-World War One. Hmm. But sometime in recent months, that gave way to the party's desire for transformational economic and social change. More than any recent presidential nominee, Biden is more figurehead than party leader. He was the fail-safe choice, the last-ditch savior in South Carolina after Bernie Sanders looked like he could run the primary table. Mr. Biden was lifted by his party's elites. He owes them more than they owe him. All of which leads to doubts Mr. Biden would govern like the moderate of Milwaukee's virtual convention. Right. I mean, it wasn't even moderate or Marxist. That wasn't even the deal with his remarks yesterday. It was just vanilla refrigerator magnet sloganeering, which you've gotten used to, uh, which is the stock and trade of. Well, that actually was the stock and trade of the Obama Biden years. It's just that Obama was better at it than Biden, even when he was more on the on the uh, uh, on the ball. Uh, and, 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 you know, the sort of appeals to existential uh, self-actualization through politics, I find really offensive um, if I had the capacity to be offended by politicians, but I don't. And it wasn't just Biden. This was a thematic, too, in lieu of talking about uh, nuts and bolts things that a blunt instrument like government can actually accomplish. It's all these appeals to uh you know, we're all going to be happy go lucky. The uh, have a Coke and a, a smile kind of commercial setting. It, it, save our souls, John Meacham. I mean, John Meacham is somebody I have some, some, some sort of begrudging respect for as a historian and as a person of faith. But really, John? Bending that arc requires all of us, it requires we the people, and it requires a president of the United States with empathy, grace, a big heart, and an open mind. Joe Biden will be such a president. With our voices and our votes, let us now write the next chapter of the American story, one of hope, of love, of justice. If we do so, we might just save our country and our souls. Uh. Yeah, that's a little bit grandiose for me, John. I got to tell you, Um, by the way, as the cliche goes, you should have an open mind, but not so open. It falls out the side of your head. Uh, Here's the thing as as well. I just go back to something you said a couple of times. Did you hear climate change is back? The existential threat of climate change. It's back. It's back. Top of the agenda. He's signed on to the Green New Deal. And oh, by the way. Because Joe is such a blank slate at this stage, and as the Wall Street Journal argues, really always was. He is going to be beholden. And as I said earlier in this week, the selection of Kamala Harris to be his running mate is more evidence that what I'm about to say is true. That they are going to run the table. It will be Obama staffers implementing Bernie Sanders policies. I say to close out the week what I said after Monday night's uh, opening, which is there was one moment of candor on Monday night and there turned out to be basically one moment of candor all week. And that was Bernie Sanders saying the uh, things I was advocating a couple of years ago that were termed radical are now mainstream. 
Well, they're certainly mainstream in the Democrat Socialist Party. And that's the stream in which Biden and Harris are swimming. Make no mistake about it. Podcast of the show at danproftshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And the uh, title of Carter Page's book is a one sentence summary of three and a half years of Democrat socialist work product. The book, Abuse and Power How an Innocent American Was Framed in an attempted coup against the president. That's three and a half years of what the Democrat socialists have been up to. Uh, Actually, it's more than that if you go back to the campaign and the closing days of the Obama administration, which, of course, you should. Remarkable. For a discussion on his new book and the trials and tribulations and vindication uh, that Carter Page has earned, we're pleased to be joined by Carter Page, American citizen, model American citizen, graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy, a lot of people forget that successful businessman who served in his in uh, America's um, clandestinely as a source for America's intelligence services. Carter, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, great to be with you. So the one of the things that has come out uh, recently in part with the plea agreement with uh, former FBI attorney Kevin Kleinsmith is that the CIA informed the FBI in August of 2016 that you were one of the individuals they worked with. You were an asset of the CIA. And yet the FBI persisted to uh, pursue four uh, surveillance warrants against you over the course of the intervening year and a half, despite knowing that you were working on behalf of our government via the CIA. How do you explain that? Well, what's interesting, I mean, this is, just shows the agenda that these people ha- have, Dan. Again, I was just serving my country. And unfortunately, there were a lot of bad actors acting within primarily the FBI, but also other elements within the government, the uh, Obama administration's DOJ and other people sort of scattered around. And it's, it's a long story, and I, uh, but an exciting and important story in terms of exposing this. But I uh, I talk about all of this in my book. And unfortunately, you know, there's a lot more to Mr. Kleinsmith uh, than just that. I actually was, I was in touch with him. Uh, a couple of the lawyers that were helping me back in, uh, you know, I had a, a long series, you know, along the lines of my extensive support and interaction with the FBI and CIA previously. I had meetings throughout March of 2017. And one of my uh, uh, one of the FBI agents I uh, was with, he referred uh, my attorney to uh, to Mr. Kleinsmith actually, so they could work out some details. And unfortunately, when I started getting more death threats, which I had been getting for quite some time, um, you know, I informed Mr. Kleinsmith of that, and unfortunately, not only did uh, apparently nothing get done. But even worse, uh, you know, they continue to leak more uh, sensitive and false, you know, in many cases, uh, misleading information to the big uh, Washington Post and New York Times and 
well, NBC well, over the over the coming months, and un- unfortunately, the death threats just continued. So yes, I mean there was a lot of um, I, I think the uh, you know this new case that you're talking about starts um, you know it's it's a first initial step, but there's uh, there's definitely a lot more that should be coming. What were the details that your attorney was attempting to work out with Kleinsmith? With details with with respect to what? Well, so. You know, I, basically, I had spent five, I had gone to five meetings with the FBI throughout the month of March 2017. And finally, you know, my attorney, and I, you know, he was kind of, and I, I, you know, along the lines of what you said at the open, I was just trying to set the record straight. And the attorney says, listen, I mean, this has just gone on too long, and these people are just asking you all kinds of ridiculous questions. Again, mostly related to the DNC funded fake dossier, uh, which was a, a bunch of Russian disinformation, which I knew at the time, but which has now more recently been uncovered uh, just this year. But, you know, he's like, listen, I mean, enough is enough already. We ought to negotiate a proffer letter or some, you know, some basic uh, just um, procedural details, so, you know, before you just continue this forever, because... Sure. You know, and, this and, is just this is just going nowhere. And you know, and again, he actually turned out to be right. And again, I, I get into a lot of the details in my book, but unfortunately, um, you know, again, I uh, they really did nothing, and I, I had no idea how devious the whole the whole uh, gang of them were. Right. It's well documented. You were proactive in attempting to answer questions, offering to answer questions, to tell your story. And that's an important point to make. Uh, When we come back with Carter Page, I want to pick up there, break down the uh, CIA and the FBI throughout this whole saga in terms of what communication, if any, occurred as it pertained to Carter Page and surveilling him. More with Carter Page right after this. And uh, the CIA and the FBI during this whole imbroglio in this whole saga, because I, I think it would seem to the outside observer, wait a second, he's uh, working with the CIA. Now he's under investigation by the FBI. The CIA has communicated with the FBI about their working relationship with Carter Page. Ultimately, they, they must have said something positive about you. Otherwise, why would you be working at their behest? Or, you know, this this arrangement. And yet the CIA just stood down and watched this go on for a year and a half. There's no communication. I mean, I know uh, the report is that Durham's going to be speaking with Brennan. But what about those individuals at the CIA who you interface with and then the FBI? I mean, do those uh, individuals communicate at all about an understanding of who Carter Page is and what he's doing? Again, if you just read these four fake FISA warrants that people like James Comey and this week's DNC speaker, Sally Yates, Andy McCabe, and all these other bad actors in Washington were submitting to mislead the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court in Washington. 
it's just completely out to lunch. Me and uh, one of the lawyers I'm working with were going through it last night. And I mean, it's just every page is just so preposterous. You know, it makes no sense whatsoever. So, so, nobody, so, so nobody at the CIA backed your play? Apparently not. And part of the problem, Dan, is that these people, they hide beneath secrecy. Some journalists have started to uncover this and are, are pretty upset that there has not been more disclosure out of the, out of the FBI. But unfortunately, there, the cover-up just continues to this day. And, and uh, Sally Gates is a, a great example of what we've seen play out over the last three years, which is that the people in charge had no idea what was going on, so they say. They are remarkably uncurious people to rise in their professions the way they did to be the acting attorney general of the United States in the case of Sally Yates, to be the FBI director in the case of Jim Comey. Nobody asks any questions about the underlying evidence, the Steele dossier that's used to support the uh, FISA warrants. Nobody asks any questions about what well, it's, it's an odd thing. This Carter Page, what well, he's he's an agent for the Russian government, but the CIA hasn't figured it out yet because he's working for them. It is preposterous. And I wonder what kind of, if any, interactions you had with senior level people whose names uh, many more Americans now know because of their participation in this attempted coup, as you describe it. Well, I actually get into this in Chapter 8 of my book, talking about the legal dimensions. I, um, on January 10th, 2017, I was at a, uh, an open session at the Council on Foreign Relations. You know, most of those meetings are the uh, not for attribution but this was a, uh, a live-streamed open event, and Lisa Monaco, who was a senior White House official in the Obama administration, you know, in her last couple of days in office, I asked her about this FISA abuse, which, again, was starting to leak out a little bit. And, of course, she completely dodged my question. But it, it goes back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago about people – having essentially no accountability and changing the subject as she did then and as we continue to see to this day. But again, I think, you know, as you're alluding to and with this initial charging document and, you know, guilty plea by Mr. Kleinsmith, we're seeing a very small first step in terms of reestablishing the American justice system. And we'll have to see how it goes. Senator Ron Johnson was asked after the Kleinsmith plea deal by Maria Bartiromo if there are other people who should be indicted. And he, he said yes, generally speaking. And he mentioned specifically Andy McCabe. I wonder if you have particular names that you think should face not just accountability, but justice. In other words, should be criminally prosecuted. McCabe, Comey, Brennan, anyone? I've stayed out of trouble the last four years by not jumping to any conclusion. I keep an open mind and I want to have all the facts. And I think it goes back to what we were just talking about of there's just a lack of facts and a lack of accurate information. Yes, definitely. There are some very damning clues and horrendous evidence about some serious wrongdoing that's, that's been done. But unfortunately, a lot of it remains covered up. But again, I think, you know, like the surprise we had last Friday with, you know, Mr. Kleinsmith getting, you know, this having this initial charge against him. I think it's a first step. And there's a lot of clues. If you read that charging document closely, there's a lot of clues that he was acting with other actors. You know, I think that's along the lines of what Chairman Johnson was talking about as well. Were you uh, interviewed by Durham? No. You haven't been interviewed by Durham or the other independent investigators, essentially independent counsels that have been uh, 
animated by Department of Justice looking at unmasking of, of uh, Michael Flynn and other matters? Look, I mean, a significant portion of the Durham probe has been about all the wrongdoing done to take me down as a way of yes, right. advancing this coup against uh, President Trump. I have always said to the uh, U.S. Department of Justice that if I can help in any way, I would be more than happy to. And I think what's interesting, and this goes to my point about the turning point that we're now seeing with this first step towards restoring justice last Friday. That procedurally, that was the first time that my civil rights were, you know, some initial procedural and legal steps were taken to enforce that. There's this law called the Crime Victims' Rights Act, and that provides various elements whereby people who are crime victims, such as I, are given some notification and our Congress demands that they are treated justly. And I have been treated completely unjustly thus far. So many criminal acts in violation of the Privacy Act and so many other statutes. And it was, I was encouraged because I was, U.S. Department of Justice did act in accordance with the law last Friday in terms of, you know, having, making some of those accommodations for, uh, you know, the people who were so terribly wronged. But again, I, I, I always bear in mind the big picture that, you know, what they did to me was part of a political ploy to use the uh, Department of Justice as well as the U.S. intelligence community to take out President Trump. Very much, very much in concert with what we uh we heard throughout the DNC. He is Carter Page. He's a U.S. Naval Academy grad. He's a successful businessman who served his country clandestinely as a source for America's intelligence service. And the book, Abuse and Power, How an Innocent American Was Framed in an Attempted Coup Against the President. Carter Page, thanks so much for joining us. Good luck with the book. Thanks so much, Dan. Welcome back to the show. Goodyear? No, the worst. Thank you. Naked gun. Goodyear Chief Executive Rich Kramer has responded to the controversy that uh, was sparked this week when it became known through a screenshot that was shared that at the Topeka facility, Topeka Goodyear facility, and part of the company's uh, diversity training showed a, uh, a slide that labeled terms like Blue Lives Matter and All Lives Matter unacceptable for Goodyear employees while endorsing Black Lives Matter as acceptable. Also uh, discussed the messaging that it is and is not acceptable in terms of clothing or uh, messages on clothing at Goodyear facilities. Well, that has drawn a hue, uh, did draw a hue and cry from a number of quarters, including police. Oh, by the way, bottom line, Goodyear has a relationship between police. They provide tires for a lot of police vehicles. Well, that is in jeopardy. 
Bill Johnson, the executive director of the National Association of Police Officers, said of the slide and the ensuing controversy, from our point of view, it's just disgusting. It would be wrong for any employer to try to dictate their employees' thoughts or feelings or political views. But in this case, I think they're on the wrong side of it, essentially, additionally. Of course, the president weighed in via Twitter, suggesting people not patronize Goodyear, you know, become a Firestone tire person. I know one auto body guy who owns a couple of auto body shops, serves high-end cars. He took his Goodyear sign down, done with it. Well, that uh, prompted Rich Kramer to issue this clarifying message, you know, 72 hours after the controversy began. This is not because it just leveled up to the CEO. This is because police union officials and law enforcement and, and law enforcement association officials are weighing because the president weighed in because they stood up and said, that's wrong. And so Rich Kramer, the CEO of Goodyear, I deeply regret the impression that was created. Uh, want to clarify Goodyear's position. First, Goodyear does not endorse any political organization, party or candidate. Second, Goodyear strongly supports our law enforcement partners and deeply appreciates all they do to put their lives on the line each and every day for our communities. We probably supply tires to police and fire personnel for more than 100 years, and that relationship is foundational to our company. We've clarified our policy to make it clear associates can express support for law enforcement through apparel at Goodyear facilities. Uh-huh. So everything's right over there at Goodyear now. But the only reason it is is because somebody said, no, I'm not going to go along with this. Somebody had the courage to stand up to the prevailing authority that is being imposed by C-suite executives, just as it is university administrators, and say, no, I don't want to be a part of that culture. And I'm going to say something. And good for those who did. Good for the president. Good for those law enforcement officials. Uh, Hopefully that will be an example that others will follow. Uh, We had a smoker in Chicago with uh, Dennis Prager last night that I participated in. Nice event. And we uh, one of the things we were talking about in this context, Dennis Prager had a good observation. And he just said, look, being afraid to be courageous, that fear is always most pronounced before you actually exhibit the courage. Once you exhibit the courage, the fear dissipates. Uh, that's a good reminder. And uh, the uh, Goodyear, is a, uh, Goodyear case is a wonderful case study. This is Dan Proud. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. And on substance, I think Joe Biden should have stuck with plagiarizing Neil Kinnock. However, on style and presentation, I think it's difficult to not concede that he cleared the very low threshold that was set for him by both the D.C. press corps, generally speaking, as well as, and I continue to be astonished by this, President Trump and Republicans. I don't know why you want to lower expectations for your opponent, but that's what they did. That's what they've done. Uh, I like what President Trump was saying more yesterday, where he's focusing on uh, a world under Democrat socialists that will dominate the Biden administration as compared to his beliefs 
and approach to matters like law and order. Here's uh, Joe Biden's closer, the big takeaway. Once in a lifetime, the longed for tidal wave of justice can rise up and hope and history rhyme. This is our moment to make hope and history rhyme with passion and purpose. Let us begin, you and I together, one nation under God, uniting our love for America, uniting in our love for each other. For love is more powerful than hate. Hope is more powerful than fear. And light is more powerful than dark. This is our moment. This is our mission. May history be able to say that the end of this chapter of American darkness began here tonight. I think he went from plagiarizing Neil Kinnock to plagiarizing Shel Silverstein from Light in the Attic. But anyway, that was the that was the closer. So what the top line takeaways, did it accomplish did the DNC accomplish what uh, Joe Biden hoped it would for him as we move into the RNC next week? Let's start there with our friend Brett Baer. He is Fox News anchor. See, I can rhyme too, Joe. Fox News anchor and number one bestselling author of Three Days at the Brink, FDR's Daring Gamble to Win World War II. So, um, you know, what's the sort of uh, beltway handle on uh, how the week went for the Democrats? Overall, well, that speech last night, I think, to your point on style and delivery was the best uh, Joe Biden has done. I mean, he's had some kind of lackluster speeches in the past, including in this campaign. But um, that one had energy. It had there was a little bit of poetry. Um, You know, Mario Cuomo used to say you campaign in poetry, you govern in prose. I think there's a lot of questions about what governing would look like under Joe Biden. But what he's painted in this kind of very wrapped up uh, convention is something that can attract, especially, um, you know, independents, suburban families. And that is a more unity pitch. And, you know, what has happened this week because of COVID and because it was all virtual, it enabled the party machine to essentially stick on message. He's a very decent guy. Here are all these stories. Yes, there's a left and right of the party, but we are all together and then dismount with this speech. So all in all, the week was exactly what the Democrats wanted. Right. Uh, They spent a lot of time on COVID uh, blaming uh, Trump for the consequences of policies they support. Yeah. I mean, listen, there's um, there's maybe a couple of things that they mentioned over the week that the administration is not doing, but they're doing pretty much everything else. Um, and, you know, so I think there, there is this sense that there is a vaccine on, on that, that may be coming. And maybe the announcement of that is going to come before the election. And there's a little bit of fear about that and what that means uh, from a Democratic perspective, which is why you have these statements like there is no vaccine to racism from Kamala Harris. And you have... Right. Right. Um, yeah, you know, metaphors. things that that kind of say it's not just getting to the vaccine. Uh, spoke with uh, comms advisor Ben Williamson uh, earlier in the program and uh, on the topic of uh, any prospects for some sort of covid-19 phase four relief uh, beyond the executive orders the president has already issued uh, before November 3rd. And he suggested eh, some optimism. Nancy Pelosi's coming off some of her. Uh, uh, demands uh, where there's real impasse, like the trillion-dollar bailout of states and and cities and so forth. Um, I I just don't see why she would. I don't see that she ever wanted to. So, I mean, is that just sort of um, wistfulness on behalf of the White House? Is there any real prospect that you're going to get anything done? Is there any real interest, even among a lot of Republicans, 
on uh, dropping another two, two trillion, one or two trillion dollars. I think Republicans want to get uh, something, even if it's a small, skinny package, as they're calling it, uh, through in part because there are Republican congressmen and senators who need to be touting something back home uh, for their reelection prospects. But, um, you know, there's a lot in this convention spent about how Joe Biden can make deals and work across the aisle. Well, he's the party head now. Uh, there's no reason that he couldn't get involved and say to Nancy Pelosi, let's make something happen here. Um, so there's a choice being made. Uh, I, I don't think the prospects are that good. I mean, it's a good point you make, too, about Biden, which sort of speaks to what, how the Wall Street Journal characterized him after the speech, which is he's more of a figurehead for the party rather than a leader of the party. And uh, that's uh, an, a, a distinction with a difference. Uh, because it really plays into the other characterization, not the Sleepy Joe stuff, but the other characterization of the Trump campaign that seems to be more on point, which is this is a guy who is going to be beholden to the center of gravity in the party. And his choice of Kamala Harris speaks to where the center of gravity is, which is far, far left. The AOC uh, uh, base, I would argue, of that party. That's who is actually going to be driving the agenda. Yeah, and I think... The Democrats worked hard to counter that narrative, and I think that they they did in what was said, what was presented. The fact that Mayor Bloomberg was one of the late speakers before Biden, I mean, that says everything you need to know. I mean, if if he was in a stadium with actual delegates, he may get booed. Yeah, and that's another like benefit to the virtual aspect of this for the Democrats. I keep hearing this from uh, the people on the other side of the aisle uh, in the media, uh, including Andy Kroll, uh, who spoke with from Rolling Stone magazine, that um, the only concern that they have, uh, they otherwise feel very confident the position they're in. They're not concerned about uh, the violence in, uh, in big city America. Uh, the only concern they have is can they keep this uh, disparate coalition together, the uh, the, the, the squad, you know, on, on the one side, Bernie Sanders that there with the squad as well and and Bloomberg and all these other elements of of the coalition that are maybe are stitched together more on what they're against than necessarily what they're for. That's the only concern they have in terms of their path to victory. That seems to be sort of taking hold as groupthink among the left. And I, I wonder if you you're seeing the same thing, because if that's true, I think they're vastly underestimating some of the salient issues that are front and center right now, both with respect to violence and with respect to the virus. I agree 100 percent. I think that President Trump is much better uh, positioned to go substance by substance point uh, to counter what uh, Biden administration would look like, like he did yesterday in Pennsylvania. But uh, I do think that that's their main concern. Uh, and I think that, you know, they effectively dealt with that. And so far, you know, the duct tape is holding and that is the unity is to make sure Donald Trump is not in office. And right now that is so powerful to the Democratic Party that, you know, AOC, Rashida Tlaib and Mike Bloomberg and Amy Klobuchar are all singing from the same sheet of music. All right. Before we let you go, since uh, you talked to Attorney General Barr, and I'm sure he shares secrets with you that aren't always made public, so we, you, can, <laughs> you can share them with us. 
Uh, so tell us, uh, you know, when the Durham report is going to be finalized, what's going to come out, when Comey's going to be indicted, um, the, uh, <laughs> the concurrent uh, U.S. attorney investigations that are going on in the same space, too, with the unmasking of Flynn. People forget about that, for example. Um, wh- what's your sense of after the plea bargain last week with Kleinsmith, the trajectory of this and, and Barr's commitment, again, public commitment, including in, in an interview with you, that uh, the story at minimum will be told between now and November of what happened in 2016 into 2017. Yeah, I think it's going to come. I think it's going to come probably before the end of August. Um, And what that looks like and whether it's a a drip of you get the story as they see it, and then there are other legal things that happen after that, uh, I don't know. But I think it's going to come sooner rather than later. They're going to let the conventions run their course. Uh, they had the Senate Intel report, which in, in it had some pretty bad stuff. You know, I mean, the Paul Manafort stuff was not not good. Uh, the fact that they think the president did talk to Roger Stone about WikiLeaks is not good um, for the administration. But the review of I the think, FBI was not good either. No, no, no. And the flip side is, is that that is where really the Durham focus is. And um, so I think it's going to come sooner rather than later. He is Brett Baer, Fox News anchor, number one best-selling author of Three Days at the Brink, FDR's Daring Gamble to Win World War II. Brett, thanks for joining us. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. It's, it's not just the defund police movement that is uh, still very much afoot that is a problem. It's also the idea that uh, ruling class politicians get protection and should have the right to protection and expectation of police protection. They can direct police protection in a way that the citizens, the residents of their communities, cannot have, are not afforded the same expectation, cannot, have, of course, exercise the same discretion. We saw it in Minneapolis with members of the city council who wanted to fund police getting paid security that was not Minneapolis police paid security on the backs of taxpayers. We saw it yesterday in Chicago with Mayor Lori Lightfoot, who explained why the police have blocked off the street on which she lives in Chicago, where protesters are banned. This is a different time like no other. And I'm not going to make any excuses for the fact Given the threats that I have personally received, given the threats to my home and my family, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure uh, that they um, are protected. Right. You're the mayor. You can direct the police chief to scramble police officers to cordon off your house and your block, which you've done. But uh, businesses in the business districts that were looted recently and twice in two months clearly can't do that, don't have that expectation. The same goes for residents, including mostly minority residents of the some of the most violent neighborhoods in Chicago. That's the disconnect. In addition to that, wait a second. What's wrong with protesters in front of your house? I thought they were all peaceful, except for a couple few people who come in and hijack the protests and force them into becoming melees. So what's the concern? For more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by Brent Orell. He is a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he works on criminal justice reform and job training. Brent, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. 
Hey, Dan. Good to be with you again. Uh, good to have you. Um, and so, you know, it's, it, it's to me, it's the sort of uh, imperiousness of politicians, whether in Minneapolis or Chicago, that drives a cynicism that makes intelligent policy discussion on things like policing very challenging. Yeah, it sure does. And listening to that clip and following some of the coverage from Chicago, that's uh, a very dismaying double standard, I think, that we're looking at. And I think it points to something that's really, really important in this issue area, which is actually how do minority communities feel about the idea of defunding the police? They're really of two minds on this, I think, which is, you know, having been exposed to some of the abuses of police power, they are nervous about their police forces, but they seem to be even more nervous about going without them. Yeah, well, there was that recent uh, Gallup survey that found 80 percent of uh, black Americans surveyed wanted either the same or more police where they live. Yeah, no, the communities that suffer most from inadequate and bad policing are the very communities often that need it, need good policing the most. And that's really where we ought to be headed on this, is how do we reform our police departments in a way, and our police practices, I think that's really more, more of the point, how do we reform police practices in a way that provides security that communities need, especially vulnerable communities, without subjecting them to the excesses of police power. So it's hard, it's tricky, and I think what you just heard mayor is you know, she she could be speaking on be, on behalf of the entire African American community in Chicago, saying, "I want a better police force, but I really do need police." Yeah, right. But she, but it, when you're just uh, focused on yourself to the exclusion of others, it rubs people the wrong way, as you as you clearly understand. Um, I, I yeah. you know, so something else about this too. So the the argument from the left has been defund police doesn't mean defund the police. It means reimagine the police. It means reform the police. It means whatever we need it to mean. Well, what the expressions we're seeing in the real world, like in Denver, where there was a proposal to turn the police force into mainly a service of unarmed mobile counselors, that is really consistent with the idea of eliminating policing of a major city. Now, it didn't pass, although I don't think the controversy there is over. But that's very different than, say, the example of Camden that you wrote about a couple of months ago and that uh, some people mentioned, but it really hasn't been developed. So there's ways to rethink how you're doing policing. Sure, there are reforms that we can discuss rationally about use of force and, 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 and those sorts of things. But but what is actually being proposed in Minneapolis, places like Minneapolis and Denver, what we're seeing in Portland and to some extent even in Chicago, I mean, that really is consistent with this idea of of eliminating police as, uh, you know, the, the, the thin blue line between civilization and barbarism. Yeah, it's the slogan, defund the police. It sounds much pithier and snappier and gets a lot more attention than something like reform the police departments. Yes, right. Yes. <laughs> you know, yeah, uh, not that, dramatic that, enough. Right. Uh, so we, we live in an age we're constantly going for clicks. Well, defund the police will get you a lot more clicks than reform the police. And it's so much better if these things, like uh, you talked about, you mentioned the Camden example, that all happened out of the spotlight. Nobody was talking about it. There wasn't some huge event 
a single event prompted it. It was just a community and a state saying, you know, we've really had enough of this. We need changes, but we're going to do this in a, you know, in a reasonable way that involves negotiations by the police union, by the government, and really includes the community in the discussion of how to go about this. And so that's what I think separates real policymaking from just efforts to inflame and exacerbate the existing problems. Yeah, and, and it, you know, it seems to me uh, so many of these uh, mayors uh, are off on the wrong foot, too. I, I don't know how they think it advances the cause of, of substantive improvement to start out by saying, hey, all you people in that uh, organization are racists, including uh, the, you know, in this case of Chicago, the 50 percent of you are minorities. You're part of a systemically racist institution as well. If there's issues, racial issues within the police department, then they should be addressed. Of course, the public posturing just pits one against the other. That's, you know, civilian political authority pitted against the law enforcement authority. That is not a good situation, as we saw play out in Seattle with Carmen Best resigning. And it's so easily avoidable if you behave like an adult who's interested in solutions rather than, you know, engaging in the cheap demagoguery of the day. Yeah, no, I think I agree with that. I, I, I've had a concern for a while now about the overuse of the idea of systemic racism. And I want, I want to be clear that I do think uh, if you understand that concept that it's kind of hard to argue with, that there are aspects of the way that we organize our public systems that have disproportionate impacts on minorities. I don't think that's really um, really in question. I think that what happens, though, is when people hear the word racism, they think of Bull Connor. And that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about uh, fire hoses and, and drone shepherds and, uh, you know, the overt racism that the country dealt with years ago. When people hear systemic racism, they say to themselves, I'm not racist. I'm not racist in that way. Uh, and I, I think we really need to shift our vocabulary on this to talk about how systems do tend to put certain populations at disadvantage. Um, and that includes, uh, frankly, that includes poor white populations as well as low-income minority communities. Uh, actually, you know, low-income whites have lots of negative interactions with the police department. This is not just a phenomenon of uh, minority communities, and that's a, a systemic issue of how the police interact with low-income people. He is a Brent Orell. He's a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he works on criminal justice reform, as we were discussing on the policing side, as well as job training. Brent, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me again, Dan. podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And um, I don't know, is this something like uh, N.T. Wright meets C.S. Lewis of sorts here? I don't know, though, that this would constitute an apologetic, but our next guest has written a book about biblical stories <laughs> with the uh, very interesting title, Murder Bears, Moonshine, and Mayhem, Strange Stories from the Bible to Leave You amu- Amused, Bemused, and Hopefully Informed. I uh, knew I was in for um, 
a uh, different kind of read when on the, the first page uh, before the table of contents, there is a citation from Ecclesiastes and a quote from Jay Sherman, the John Lovitz cartoon character in the show, The Critic, which, by the way, is a very underrated show. So I appreciate both <laughs> citations, actually. He is Luke Harrington, award-winning novelist, best-selling humorist, as you already have some indication, and host of the Change My Mind podcast. Luke, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It's uh, <laughs> nice to know you're also a fan of The Critic. I love that show. <laughs> it's very good. I mean, it really is very good. It's very funny. Um, so this is a, a, a very fun way, very creative way to make uh, – the Bible accessible and some of the biblical stories. Um, I, I never thought I would quite hear uh, this story characterized this way. Elijah thinks your God is pooping. Um, so, <laughs> so if you could translate the translation for us. Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is a story from the book of first Kings. That's it's a mainstay in Sunday school classes yeah. and Bible storybooks for kids. But what often gets cut out is there's a pretty good poop joke right in the middle of the narrative. Um, for anyone who, who doesn't know the narrative, it's, it's Elijah versus the prophets of Baal. Um, and Elijah makes basically a wager with these um, prophets of the, the pagan god Baal. He says, let's each build an altar. Let's each build a sacrifice, you know, put a sacrifice on top of it. And then we'll just wait for our respective gods to light it up for us. And whoever's God actually shows up and does it, we'll just agree that's the real God, right? Um, So obviously the prophets of Baal go first, and they build their altar. They pray for lightning or or fire to fall from the sky from Baal, and they dance around, and they start getting desperate and cut themselves open, like to bleed to get his attention. And uh, Baal doesn't show up, right? He doesn't light the offering up. Um, And Elijah, at some point, gets bored and starts mocking them. And he says, you know, shout louder for, you know, he's a God. Uh, just, uh, I'm, I'm trying to, trying to find it in my book just so I get it right. But he, he's like, shout louder for he's a God. Maybe he's out for a walk or maybe he has uh, stepped aside to relieve himself, something like that. Um, right. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, the Hebrew word there is sig, which is a bit of a euphemism. It literally means to step aside, um, but it's pretty commonly used in ancient Hebrew as a as a euphemism for you know going to the John. Um, I, I, I got to admit, I, man about a horse. I, I, yeah, right. Drop off the kids at the pool, et cetera, et cetera. Right, um, right. I, I, I've, I've uh, I got to admit, I, I've read the story many times. I never caught that. I, I'm going to I'm going to have to bounce this up against Dennis Prager to make sure this checks out. But it, it seems uh, it seems plausible. Um, you also have uh, some um, uh, unconventional interpretations of some of the uh, of, of key biblical figures. For example, you uh, suggest that Noah was a moonshining hillbilly. <laughs> Which is I haven't but more for humorous. I haven't quite heard Noah characterized exactly in those terms before. Well, he lives in the hills. He's making homemade <laughs> wine, so not 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 technically homemade liquor. I don't know if it's technically moonshine, but it's it's a uh, pretty close. Yeah, after um. After the Noah's Ark narrative, which, again, this is one of the parts that probably got cut out of your Sunday school lesson, there's a whole chapter, give or take, in Genesis about how, you know, Noah lands the Ark on on Mount Ararat and gets out, and he settles there. And then it says he becomes a man of the soil, 
grows a vineyard, makes wine, and then he turns, you know, he makes some bathtub wine, he gets drunk on it, and he ends up lying naked in his tent, um, which is a very odd bit of information to add about uh, one of the key figures in the Old Testament. But there it is. So he would have had a reality show were he around today. There's no question about it. Um, like Moonshine or something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Probably. And this, well, yeah. when we come back, I want to go through more, um, as I say, innovative interpretations of uh, b- biblical stories and biblical figures, and also then get the actually the backstory of uh, the approach that you take to some of these stories, which I, I think I have an idea about accessibility. But uh, nonetheless, we'll hear from more from Luke Harrington, award-winning novelist, best-selling humorist, and host of the Changed My Mind podcast, which I also want to discuss right after this. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're talking to Luke Harrington. He's an award-winning novelist, best-selling humorist, and host of the Change My Mind podcast. Change My Mind podcast, let me enunciate. His new book, Murder Bears, Moonshine, and Mayhem. Strange stories from the Bible to leave you amused, bemused, and hopefully informed. And it's uh, it's really a lot of fun. Um, to, I, I, I can't I actually I don't know if I've ever come across a more fun way to uh, understand biblical stories or at least some aspects of them, perhaps outside of C.S. Lewis. Uh, so I, I feel like I'm just here, like prompting you. It's just like, you know, I'm a, tell me that joke. Tell me this joke. But. Um, uh, again, another uh, thing I never really picked up on in, in reading the Bible, never put the pieces together like you did. Apparently, if you're a good enough stripper, it's really easy to get someone beheaded. <laughs> yeah, I, I addressed that one in the book, even though there's really nothing that odd about the passage in Scripture. Um, that one is um, uh, the narrative of uh, Salome, the daughter daughter of um, Herod the Great, right. or not Herod the Great, Her- uh, Herod an- Herod, the other Herod. <laughs> a- a- Antipas of Galilee, right? There you go. There you go. Um, yeah, and he, um, th- there's a narrative in the, the book of Luke, I believe. My, <laughs> I'm doing this off the top of my head. Um, but it, it says um, he, his daughter danced for him, and he was so pleased by the dance that uh, he offered her anything she wanted, and what she said was, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter, um, because her mother really had it in for John the Baptist. So um, the interesting thing about that (laughs) is that a lot of people have this conception that she did this very racy dance. There's this idea she did. She did the quote-unquote dance of the seven veils. Um, And I, I dig into that a little bit in the book, and it turns out that none of that is in the Bible, right? Um, the idea of a racy dance, and especially not the idea of uh, seven veils, is none of that's in there. And none of it appears anywhere until the 19th century, right? So there's nothing in tradition, there's nothing in other ancient texts. It's, it's, it was basically something Oscar Wilde made up. Um, and Oscar Wilde, for anyone who doesn't know, was this playwright in 19th century England. He uh, Famously wrote the the novel The Picture of Dorian Gray, the uh, the, the importance of being earnest, um, and he just kind of made that up. And now everybody thinks it's 
like gospel truth, so to speak, which is interesting. Uh, there's also, yeah, I, I think it was uh, by the the book of Matthew, by the way, but um, but you know, n- not to quibble. Um, there, there's also, right. I also, I also wanted you to uh, to address this uh, too because uh, it may change, uh, you know, the way that we think about um, uh, presenting ourselves. There is no commandment to wear pants, and I think that's an important point that's also glossed over too often in discussions about the Bible. <laughs> well, and I think with um, with COVID lockdown happening, we're all learning the joys of not wearing pants. Yeah, right? a little bit more <laughs> relaxed, exactly. And if I'm not offending God, then what's the harm, right? If that's consistent with uh, at least one interpretation of Scripture. Uh, so no commandment to wear pants. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't looked for it. So I, 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 you, you may be right, but, um, the, uh, the argument there. What, that there's no commandment to wear pants? Yeah. I mean, just, you're just talking about the, like that there's gratuitous nudity in the Bible and, and so forth. Right. That's the sort of the, yeah, the, 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 I, I use that as a chapter title. There's no commandment to wear pants. Um, just because, well, I mean, that's mostly a joke, but um, yeah, right. it is. It is interesting reading the Bible, and, you know, you come across instances of nudity <laughs> that are sometimes commented on and sometimes not. Um, and you, you really, like, if you read it honestly, you get the picture that, you know, hey, the Bible was written over thousands of years um, in, you know, dozens of the context of dozens of different cultures, and every culture clearly had a different understanding of when nudity was appropriate and what it meant and that sort of thing. Like it's interesting um, in the book of first Samuel, I believe um, there's a story in, in, uh, in murder bears about um, uh, King Saul. He's chasing after David um, because, you know, he Saul wants to kill David. It's a whole thing throughout like three different books of the Bible. Um, and what happens is he comes on to, he comes along like a prophet convention, like a bunch of prophets just prophesying and somehow he's overcome by the spirit and he starts prophesying as well. And then the text just says, and he too stripped himself naked and lay before Samuel prophesying until morning. Like it's just totally a normal thing to strip right. yourself naked when you're prophesying. It's not even commented on. Uh, or, really interesting. Or, or as you mentioned in, um, from a chapter in Acts where, the uh, there was a, a botched exorcism and uh, uh, the uh, demons stripped the uh, exorcist naked. I mean, so it's just again, somebody always ends up naked at the end of these stories. Is, is your point? <laughs> it's just it's very funny. Well, so so just uh, take a step back and just you know the the purpose of of uh, uh, tackling the stories of the Bible from this perspective. I mean, obviously it's a lot of fun. I mean, we're having a lot of fun just reviewing it, but. But um, the the larger point is to make it more accessible, I would think, to people that may otherwise be intimidated by the density of it or kids just getting out and starting to learn learn the stories. Right. Yeah. I mean, that is the, the that is the intent. I think a lot of people, you know, have heard heard by like or have only encountered Bible stories in the context of like Sunday school. Right. Or like Bible storybooks when they're kids um, and they have this idea in their head that, oh, the Bible is just a bunch of fairy tales for children. Right. And I'm just over here like, eh, it's not really for children. You know, <laughs> um, fairy tales are not. It's clearly not for children. Let me show you some of the racier parts of it. Some of the stuff written at a level that kids wouldn't be able to relate to, um, you know, and I obviously I took the time to try to do a lot of uh, serious research in writing the book. There's copious footnotes for people who want to look up the scholarly sources where I'm I'm getting my material. 
Um, but the idea is, yeah, let's put it on a little bit of a lower shelf for people who don't want to necessarily read a serious um, commentary or, you know, maybe people, maybe people who are even too intimidated to pick up a Bible um, can just read this and enjoy it. And maybe, you know, in the process, I'll be able to invite them into reading the scriptures a little more deeply as well. Yeah, you know? no, I, I think it's I think it's great. And I mean, I I. I um... That's high praise to invoke C.S. Lewis, but I mean that was one of the geniuses of C.S. Lewis is to make it accessible through great storytelling. So I think that's I think it's wonderful. Uh, he is Luke Har- he is Luke Harrington, award-winning novelist, best-selling humorist, host of the Change My Mind podcast. His book, Murder Bears, Moonshine, and Mayhem: Strange Stories from the Bible to Leave You Amused, Bemused, and Hopefully Informed. Luke, thanks for joining us, and good luck with the book. Yeah, thank you for having me. Take care. You're listening to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. It's been uh, quite the week for uh, new edicts on dogs around the world. In North Korea, that uh, tin pot dictator Kim Jong-un reportedly ordered the confiscation of all dogs, all domesticated dogs, because it uh, represented uh, bourgeois Western values. There's uh, some supposition that it was confiscating dogs to be prepared to feed the people uh, as a dog owner, my little guy Hayek, not, you know, that's, that does not set well with me. Um, but neither does this in Germany. This is the opposite direction. <laughs> you can find a, a happy medium here. Uh, taking your dog for walks twice a day for at least an hour in total could soon become the law in Germany. Walkies could become the law for German dog owners. Two walks a day for at least an hour total. And, uh, you know, when the Germans say they want order, they mean it. There could also be a ban on keeping dogs chained for long periods. Also, rules being devised to crack down on puppy farms by banning breeders from looking after more than three litters at any one time. I mean, I just... Pets are not cuddly toys. Their needs have to be taken into account, said Agricultural Minister Julia Klockner about the plan changes, of course, because... Very much like your kids, the state cares about your puppy more than you do. Uh huh. Under the plan rules, again, listen to this. Twice a day for a minimum one hour, as I mentioned, the walks. They will not be allowed to keep their dog dogs chained for what long periods of time. Also, not lead, not allowed to leave dogs alone for the whole day. The whole day, whatever that that's whatever they con- constitutes the whole day. And these are rules are of course based on the experts. Expert advice and animal protection. Uh, if passed, it will be up to individual German states to enforce it. But uh, a spokeswoman for the agriculture ministry said it was unlikely private dog owners would receive police visits to check on whether they had their pooch 
whether they had taken their pooch for at least the two walks for at least the total of one hour. Uh huh. Great. I won't be minded after at that uh, level of detail. That's very encouraging. Uh, Just remarkable, especially against the backdrop of the pandemic. And by the way, Germany's still dealing with COVID-19 as well. Uh, This is uh, high priority stuff, not to mention just the Stasi-ish nature of it all, regulating your interaction with your pet as well as your care of your pet where you know, preemptively where no abuse is alleged. It's just you were we find these to be best practices based on the experts. So we're going to impose them on you in terms of your relationship with your dog. For goodness sakes, I don't even feel like I need to explain this. If this isn't obvious, then the West is lost. This is the Dan Prop Show. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Thank you for joining us. Follow us at danproftshow.com and on social media at danproftshow. And uh, part of the show last night, to close out the DNC was uh, the star power of Julia Louis-Dreyfus. She of uh, Seinfeld and Veep fame, of course. And um, I'll tell you what, I have newfound respect for the writers of those sitcoms after listening to uh, what uh, the DNC uh, comedy staff writers came up with. So what did you... This is, uh, by the way, an exchange between Dreyfus and Andrew Yang as a bridge to uh, ultimately her introduction of Joe Biden. I mean, this between Andrew Yang, Mr. You know, UBI, Universal Basic Income and uh, Dreyfus after talking about Kamala's speech earlier in the week. So what did you think about Kamala Harris's speech last night? It was tremendous. I was so happy for her. I know. Me, too. She's fabulous. I cannot wait to see her debate our current vice president, Mika Pints. Or uh, is it Paints? It's pronounced Ponce, I believe. Oh, some kind of weird foreign name? Yeah, not very American sounding. Yeah, that's what people are saying strongly. Well, uh, thank you, Andrew. And please give my regards to the gang. Uh, I could have used one of those Seinfeld laugh tracks there, I think. Wow. Whew. Uh, huh. Um, more? You want more? Just remember, Joe Biden goes to church so regularly that he doesn't even need tear gas and a bunch of federalized troops to help him get there. Hi, oh, and more. An easy way to remember 30330 is that's the year Donald Trump will finally release his tax returns. If we all vote, there is nothing Facebook, Fox News and Vladimir Putin can do to stop us. But first, let's reaffirm the all-American values that our party and Joe Biden stand for. Take my wife, please. Uh, For more on all of this hilarity, we're pleased to be joined by Rob Long. I can't think of anybody better to discuss. Editor-in-chief at Ricochet.com, regular writer for National Review, and former writer and producer for Cheers. Although, gosh, I I watched every episode of Cheers. I don't think uh, you all came up with anything that hysterical 
as uh, that performance last night from Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Rob. That was something. Well, you know, we tried. We didn't quite get there. <laughs> the thing, listen, I have sympathy for uh, the writers uh, there because it's really hard to write uh, for uh, with a committee of politicians and media handlers and consultants and general worrywarts. They will usually take the sting and the funny out of every possible joke. It's like, especially if you're liberal, right? The liberals think their idea of funny is just funny things that happen on NPR. You know, I should say there, I should say there, there are two <laughs> yeah. kinds of funny in the world. It's, there's things that are funny, and then there's NPR funny, and NPR funny is just not funny. So I don't know. I, I mean, I, I, I have professional um, respect for anybody who tried to write jokes for a bunch of uh, political figures to say. Yeah, and, and look, and, and it was nice that the DNC threw Kathy Griffin some work and got her a writing credit. So, I mean, you got to appreciate that, too. It's very charitable. Yeah, right. Um, well, in these troubled times, as we say, in these troubled times. By the way, just as I mean, I, I love Cheers. I still Cheers, it, you know, a test of a good show. It holds up over time. And uh, t- almost three decades later, I still watch reruns of Cheers. It was so, so good. Good. And good. And Thank you. but 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 then. But, so that was the setup to now have a complaint. Of course, my complaint is I, I just heard the Cheers theme music set against an Applebee's commercial. I mean, don't you have quality control over that? <laughs> No, look, everybody, uh, everybody's trying to catch a dime right now. So I don't, I don't even know who owns that, that song anymore. Because, of course, you know, songs get sold, bought and sold by, by groups. So, you know, when you hear um, musicians complain that this or that song of theirs was played at a political gathering and they don't like the politician for whatever reason, right? Um, it, they, they act like it's their song. It's like, no, 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 you sold it. That's like saying you don't like what somebody's doing in the house that you sold them. No, no, you don't get to say that you took the money and you, that's it. So I don't know who, I don't know who owns that song, but whoever owns that song decided, well, what the hell? Let's take a little, a uh, little cash on that. I can't, I can't, I can't really complain about that. No, I know. You know, it's just, it's just the, 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 the romanticism I have for cheers as yeah. uh, part of no, my childhood, that. you know, that whole thing. But now, uh, but also like, you know, that nobody at Applebee's knows your name. That is, that is true. Like, so it's technically <laughs> correct. <laughs> <laughs> Technically yeah, right. appropriate. Uh, so uh, cheers uh, in, in the news uh, this week as well because of uh, Cliff Clavin, uh, John Ratzenberger uh, leveling up with an idea to save the post office. And I mean, obviously, there's somebody who cares deeply about the post office. I remember. Uh, but uh, Cliff saying, you know, use your Christmas money, Cliff slash John, uh, use your Christmas money, to go out and buy postage stamps. You know, that, that's something that actually you get from the government that keeps its value. Which is pretty good insight. You know, John's really smart, and uh, he has been—he's um, uh, in that weird position. I think. I mean, I don't, I don't, I can't really uh, define his politics, but I would certainly say he is more conservative than liberal. Yeah. And he—he um, he has been a staunch advocate of the post office, but also a staunch critic of the post office, the way a lot of us have been. And he's also been—he's got a, a couple pet issues that um, are really great. And uh, and you know, he's kind of plugged along. He, he you know, he made his dough. Uh, at Cheers, and he plugs along and does kind of good stuff, and and um, you know he's a perfect model for what a celebrity really should be doing. You pick a few issues, you don't be a jerk, uh, you 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 make reasonable suggestions, um, and you sort of bring everybody into the conversation. I think you know he's one of my favorite people for that reason. Now, in real life, does he actually grow? What was it, a potato that looked like Richard Nixon? Does he actually? Does that, <laughs> no. is, that is that one of his pastimes? <laughs> no, in fact, I think. There was a period at which I think he was a little bit like as, a, as an actor, you know, you think, well, what happens when this gig is over? 
Like, I'm just going to be forever typecast as some weirdo. Um, and I think he kind of felt that way a little bit, but he kind of, uh, no, he didn't do, he didn't do anything weird. I don't even really think he drank that much beer, to be quite honest. Uh, I, I, which distinguishes him from George Wendt, who is, uh, you know, s- yes. somewhat similar to Norm in real life. <laughs> yes, he really, he, uh, that was not, um, a, not a, a, a method acting stretch for him, <laughs> put it that way. Uh, so uh, just, uh, just before we get into some other issues and some uh, recent pieces you wrote, which are very funny, very good, um, the, uh, you know, what your experience in Hollywood, I mean, being a writer and producer on a show, one of the most successful sitcoms in ever in television history. I, I just wonder if you've had a little bit of the Andrew Clavin experience, a successful guy, but uh, has been a little bit more pronounced, a lot more pronounced in Andrew's case as a conservative. And so, you know, even though he's had a, a novels optioned into movies produced by Clint Eastwood, uh, you know, the work dries up. Well, you know, I have not had that experience. You know, Drew, I drew, I have old friends. I've known Drew for a long time, and I know he has had that experience and felt that. Um, I haven't. I've actually kind of felt the reverse. I think if you really, and I shouldn't say this, it makes it really uh, upsets people like Drew when I say it. But if you really look at my career and you look at the things I've done, uh, so I've done some things uh, because I was known as a you know center right figure. Mm. Um, I think. Luckily for me, no, I mean, I write for most of the National Review and Ricochet and places like that. And um, luckily for me, nobody in, the, in Hollywood knows what National Review is. I think at one point, they, <laughs> real, I, this is not a joke, but at one point they were uh, – I think uh, some people thought I was, I was a contributing editor at The Nation, which is um, – they just got it confused. Yeah. Which is good for me, right? Because, yeah. Like, oh, yeah, well, whatever. You just, you just keep believing what you believe. <laughs> as long as they don't talk to I, Katrina I, Vanden Heuvel, then find yeah, you know, find exactly you out. Exactly right, exactly right. But I, I think for me, it was it, it's been a slightly different pattern. Um, although I don't know what I haven't, what people haven't called me up for because they haven't called me up. But in general, look, look I always say this: I would, I have found as a you know as a Republican, even um, back when I identified as Republican or a conservative, I have found more interesting, thoughtful inquisitive, curious, uh, even intellectual, say, response from people on the left in Hollywood um, than I'm sure I would have at any American university. Hollywood is much more open and intellectually honest uh, and curious than any American university, especially, really, especially the expensive, fancy one. I don't know if that Um, is, I don't know if, I'm, I'm, I don't know how to take that if that is a, intended to be encouraging about Hollywood or distressing about American colleges and universities. I don't know where the balance well, is there. I, I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, I, I don't think, well, Hollywood is, is definitely politically monolithic, except for a few people. Um, and so I feel like that's probably part of the part of, of the, the issue. But um, but I, I never felt like I, I couldn't, you know, write what I wanted to write and be who I wanted to be and say what I wanted to say. If anything... You know, sometimes I would find people on the left in Hollywood were curious. They wanted to know more about what I thought and why I thought it. As where, as opposed to like, if I was an English an English professor at Yale, I would have been fired. You know, twenty years ago. Uh, when we come back with Rob Long, editor in chief of Ricochet.com, writer for National Review, a former writer producer for Cheers, as we were discussing, he has some advice about uh, how to uh, communicate in these times, advanced digital times. Uh, it sums it up in four words, and we'll discuss. Call me to discuss right after this. Blow, 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 blow like you're never gonna blow again. I'm calling to you like a long lost 
Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Rob Long, editor-in-chief at ricochet.com. He's a regular writer for National Review, not The Nation, National Review, and former writer-producer for Cheers as well. And, uh, Rob, you've got some uh, advice and counsel in a piece uh, you uh, penned recently for, uh, recently for uh, how to communicate. Uh, despite all the channels of communication, um, it's very uh, yeah. it's very soprano-ish. You know, it's a face-to-face business. We're not sending, well, in that time, faxes or emails. Yeah. Uh, call me to discuss could avoid so much of the cancel culture. Totally. I mean, I remember when my attorney, when was my lawyer in uh, L.A., and she was calling, she sent me an email and said, hey, I have a client who wants to, is going to hire a writer you worked with before. Would you mind talking to him and, you know, giving him an impression of this guy, this writer, before he hires him? And I said, yeah, just give him, have, have him uh, send me an email, connect us on the email. I'm traveling today. And she said, no, 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 he's going to call you. And I said, oh, that's a terrible idea from Rick Hobby. I'm not really around. Have him send me an email. And then she called me and said, listen, if you're going to tell the truth about something or be blunt about something, do not put it in writing ever. Not a text, no instant message, no tweet. It's call me to discuss. Those are the four words you told me that will save you. Because when you talk to somebody, you can say anything and then you can deny it later if it's trouble. And there's really only two people in the conversation. So one person misheard. Um, but if you write it down, it lives forever. And nobody wants that. But if you're in, in a non two party state where you can be taped. Did you ever think of that? That's a very good point. In, in that case, just don't ever say anything. Don't anymore. say anything. Exactly. <laughs> just never utter a word. It's just, right. you know, it's interesting. But then how are people like me going to spend their afternoons if they can't engage in endless uh, fights on Twitter? I don't, I don't know what, well, what, what am I supposed yeah. to do in this world? <laughs> yeah. I actually, I would argue that, that most people, you don't ever need to be on Twitter. And you certainly, unless you're putting up pictures of your cute dog, there's no point. No Twitter, no Twitter argument has ever solved anything or, or persuaded anyone. All it's done is give them this kind of horrible indigestion, heartburn, stress kind of low-level chronic pain that I, you know, I don't think uh, your doctor would be happy with. I wanted to uh, yeah, just continue this because you wrote a, a fun little parody piece for National Review on the effectively on the cancel culture with the press releases announcing the uh, termination or separation or taking time off of some of the uh, favorite uh, sitcom characters of uh, of the television era, the Ralph Cramdens and the Ricky Ricardos. Right. And, and you're just, you know, a little bit more development there in terms of your point about where we're at with uh, this idea of uh, of trying to destroy people end people with whom you disagree or end people who made perhaps a, a poor, an error in judgment, but I mean, it doesn't come from a malicious place. Well, we've all, have you all had that experience where you see, I mean, look, I'll be honest, but I'll be oblique here. I'm not trying to get myself in trouble, but I have read articles about people who have gotten in trouble for stuff and thought to myself, oh man, I did I, that. I think I did that. Yeah, oh, right. That's okay. Good. That's all good. And then you start thinking about what about all the people in history who did stuff that would now be, you know, and we, we still we still talk about JFK a lot. And my God, he would have been canceled day one. It's hard not to think to yourself that, OK, as we move the goalposts, maybe moving the goalposts is right. I'm not even making an argument that it's wrong. But we might want to slow down and maybe give an unconditional amnesty to everybody in the past. And past now is 2019. 
that counts. But I, I suspected we're not going to do that. But it made me think that, well, well, you know, Ricky Ricardo, when he married, when Lucy, I love Lucy, which you have to say now, because if anybody's, your listeners are ones who are under 40, you're like, yeah, I think I heard that show. I love Lucy. Ricky Ricardo was married to, uh, to Lucille Ball. And they lived in an apartment on East 63rd Street up here in Manhattan. And she was always trying to get into his shows. He's a nightclub manager. And he would get mad at her. And a couple episodes, he would actually spank her. But he also called her regularly dumb, and I did see redhead and all sorts of things. And this is the kind of material that you would be – I mean, I don't even think they'd fire you at a studio now. They would just simply arrest you. You'd be arrested <laughs> and put into prison. Yeah. Uh, and I, then, of course, like, if you're really old, remember The Honeymooners, pretty much the original sitcom. It's a brilliant sitcom. But he actually threatened to punch his wife. Bet, pow, zoom, Alice, right in the kisser. And everybody laughed. And one of these days, Alice, he'd say when she gave him a smart remark, and he'd shake his fist at her. And you watch that now, and you think, oh, my, oh, my heaven. That would never, even if you, I think if you said in a writer's room, let's all watch an episode of the classic Honeymooners show just to kind of like all enjoy something that happened, you know, the, our forebears, I think that you'd be arrested just for showing it. Well, well, I mean, th- that's how th- crazy we are. Yeah. Well, right. I think about Cheers, actually. And too, I mean, some of the characters, oh my God. you know, right. Sam Malone being this uh, Lothario and, you know, and then the, the, the women were, you know, all the comments about women's physical appearance and stuff like that. I mean, these minders, these people that are looking to jackpot other people as sport, they can, they can take anything, uh, particularly out of context, and bastardize it in a way that says you are an uh, you know you right. are an offender. There is an episode of Cheers where Sam and Diane, Diane played by Shelley Long, stand by Ted Danson. They were great. These they, great performers. That was a little bit before my time. I was young. I was a very young guy when I joined the staff, but it was a little later in the show, so I missed this episode. But they are having it's a classic romantic comedy. They're having a fight. And they're arguing, and they're in there. They're in his office, and they're going at it. And he says something, and she slaps him, and then he slaps her back. Yeah, yeah. And then she slaps him again, and then he slaps her back again, and the audience goes wild. And what all normal people think when they see that is, here are two people who are in love, but are wrong for each other. This is a romantic comedy, and what we would think now is he should be arrested and placed into prison, and she should be given counsel. Absolutely. And look, what will happen now, at minimum, is like what just happened to Blazing Saddles on HBO Max, which is, <laughs> right. you know, the, the, the warning. Um, this is a parody. The good guys are Gene Wilder and Cleavon Little. Like, that really needed to be explained 45 years after the fact. It, but, but, you know, and we laugh about it, but the, the thing that's really disturbing is... Uh, if Mel Brooks was starting today, you the world may never have known of Mel Brooks. If Rob Long was starting oh today, the world would maybe never have known Rob Long and, and cheers and the contribution. And and that's just a less interesting, less uh, wondrous world. You know, I mean, that's a real thing. Well, look, especially if you write comedy. I mean, the thing is, that the, 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 the stuff that makes you uncomfortable and make, and you think is offensive is pretty much the funny stuff, right? And so if you write comedy or drama, you can write a, you can write a drama about anything. But if you write comedy, I have to sort of get in there and kind of shake you up a little bit. I mean, laughter is involuntary, right? I mean, you don't, you don't say, I'm going to laugh now. You just laugh. It's just spontaneous. And if you really think about it, it's an incredibly aggressive thing to do. Like somebody said something funny to you, and, and you laugh. It caused you to breathe in a different way, you know? Like you're, now you're choking. Somebody's actually choking you kind of. Like it's not a healthy thing to laugh. That's a weird way to breathe. And so when you do that, like you, in order to do that, you have to be talking about stuff or at least touching on things that touch people deeply 
And if now, if we if we just walk around like these giant open wounded sores, like people are, like everybody's this kind of terrible wounded bird or the boy in the bubble, and my God, I'm offended and terrified and scared and, and toxified and everything. Um, well, then there's no there's no there's no humor at all. That so you can't laugh because that would be my imposing a word on you that makes you breathe funny. That is an assault, and it just I mean what it just shows. But but nobody nobody really on the left ever says. Uh, well, you know what? We, we, we should we should lay off this because we don't want to lose comedy. What they say is, let's get rid of comedy because they don't like it. It's it, if you're if you're making jokes, you're making fun of something, and if you're making fun of something, you could be making fun of a vegan, and that's <laughs> that, not good, right? That is, that is across the line, obviously. Uh, yeah. Rob, Rob Long, editor in chief at Ricochet.com. Uh, contributor to National Review, former writer and producer for Cheers as well. Rob, thanks for joining us. Really appreciate it. Anytime. Take care. Listen to podcast of the show at danproftshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Um, we played uh, the other week a, a clip from a Black Lives Matter rally in Washington, D.C., an exchange between a woman named Shamika Michelle and um, some, you know, white dude uh, explaining to her and other black Americans uh, what it means to be black in America. It was, uh, you know, one of these uh, rather surreal moments we see repeated uh, throughout uh, urban centers around the country. Um, but we don't see necessarily women like Shamika give a chapter and verse to these goofballs, and that's what she did. To tell me my life matters. I don't need your privilege to tell me or to justify who I am in America. This is my country. This is my land. My ancestors built this country. So I'm going to walk around here as bold as I want to. And I don't have to have you to sign and tell me my life matters. That right there insinuates that you think your voice is bigger than better than mine. Yes, it does. Come on. No, he's you can you can you can disagree, but you are supporting an organization that does not like black men. And as a black woman, I can tell you how important black men are to the black family. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by the aforesaid Shamika Michelle, creator of the Naked Girls with a Z, who empower people to remove the masks and live honesty. She's also the author of Keep It Naked, a Naked Girl's Guide to Live Life Authentically. Shamika, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Uh, so I, I love the exchange you had there that we re- played, and um, I developed something that you you mentioned right there at the end of the clip we played, which is that you represent an organization, Black Lives Matter, that does not like black men, and 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 thus you don't understand how important black men are to the black community. What were you getting at? Well, if you go to their website, they clearly say that they affirm black women. They go on to say that they disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family and that they foster a queer affirming network. So nowhere in their, you know, bio or whatever do they say that they also protect black men. And so it seems that the only way a black man is useful to them is if he's dead. 
and that's you know to push their own political agenda. Yeah, uh, it's and I think something else you were getting to earlier in that clip we played is really important as well. But I'll let you put it in your words, which is the idea that what organizations like Black Lives Matter and particularly the white representatives of Black Lives Matter are doing uh, is taking agency away from black Americans. Right. This this struggle, if you will, that you say that we are having, it's ours. So if it's anyone that needs to have a voice, it's black people. So the fact that you feel like you are so important, you know, that you need to speak up for us, it says to me that you believe your voice is bigger and better than ours and that what we are saying is not enough. And you want to tell us or people like myself who say, I'm not oppressed. Anything that I have or don't have in, in my life is by my own choices, not because someone kept me from getting it. Then you want to tell me to be quiet. So which one is it? Do I need a voice or do I need to shut up? Yeah, and so uh, how how is it being received as this has uh, progressed on now over a few months uh, in your circles where you travel? How is Black Lives Matter? How is some of the activity, uh, including activity that has uh, produced violence, how is that being received among, you know, your friends? Well, among my friends, I think they realize that Black Lives Matter is an organization that's pushing division. I think most of my friends feel the exact same way that I do, but I do still a lot still see a lot of black people who don't realize exactly what Black Lives Matter is doing because when you donate to Black Lives Matter, it goes to push Democrat candidates. It is my opinion that Democrat candidates and Democrat policies are the ones that have ravaged the black community. So I'm just trying to continue to put the word out there so people won't be tricked. You know, it's a genuine sentiment, Black Lives Matter, as all lives matter. So they're using a genuine sentiment to kind of pull on the heartstrings of people. And, you know, it's my job, I think, to to put the word out there not to be tricked. Uh, When we come back with Shamika Michelle, I want to uh, get uh, her reaction to uh, some of what Joe Biden had to say at his nomination acceptance speech yesterday and then. You know, just talk a little bit how that translates into uh, how uh, she is thinking about the race, how those in her circles of influence are thinking about the uh, presidential contest and the future of this country. Uh, we're speaking with Shamika Michelle, creator of The Naked Girls, that's girls with a Z, who empower people to remove the masks and live honestly, and author of Keep It Naked, A Naked Girl's Guide to Live Life Authentically. More right after this. Listen, the more you'll know, this is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the program. And uh, yesterday, President, uh, President uh, Wannabe, President Wannabe Joe Biden, giving his acceptance speech to be the Democrat Socialist candidate for president. And he, uh, at the beginning, offered a a thank you to Obama, uh, of course, who he served under as vice president, and uh, using used that as a jumping off point to contrast President Obama and harken back to his years with President Obama, obviously, but contrast President Obama to President Trump. Getting rid of the protections that President Obama worked so hard to get passed 
for people who have 100 million more people who have pre-existing conditions. And speaking of President Obama, a man I was honored to serve alongside for eight years as vice president. Let me take this moment to say something we don't say nearly enough. Thank you, Mr. President. You were a great president, a president our children could and did look up to. No one's going to say that about the current occupant of the White House. What we know about this president is if he's given four more years, he'll be what he's been for the last four years. President takes no responsibility. Shamika Michelle joins us again. Again, she's the creator of the Naked Girls, G-R-L-G-I-R-L-Z, who empower people to remove the masks and live honestly, author of Keep It Naked, a Naked Girl's Guide to Live Life Authentically. Shamika, what about that? Obviously, Joe Biden went on, as did many other speakers over the last four days, to make race a prominent issue and suggest that the president is racist and to some extent by extension. So are his supporters. You know, I feel to keep trying to throw Obama out there is racist to me because he's your token, just as Kamala is a token. And I think Joe Biden feels like, okay, I need to keep mentioning Obama and how great he was or continue to put him out there because he believes black people or all black people just love Obama. You know, but I think Joe needs to realize that there are many of us who, though we appreciate the job that Obama did as far as, you know, he didn't have this big scandal while he was in the White House. We don't really look to a man who dances around in mom jeans as our final authority. So, <laughs> right. you know, to keep yeah. putting him out there, we don't really care. Yeah, and by, by, I mean, and you can't watch him throw a baseball either without cringing. Uh, uh, <laughs> or, or ride a bike, for that matter. But, um, but yeah, so, so it, how did you come to your views, uh, uh, you know, but say over the last decade from President Obama and the, the promise that a lot of black Americans put in his presidency versus where we are today, more than a decade after he took office? You know, I feel like President Obama did more for the LGBTQ community than he ever did for the black community. And it was very noticeable. And there were things about that that just don't sit right with my personal values. I have an issue with the man being in the bathroom with my daughters. I have an issue with the man being in the bathroom with me. And I just begin to realize that some of the policies that the Democrats push just don't line up with my own personal values. I was raised in the church and, you know, I believe in God, family and country. So it was easy for me to just kind of switch parties because they, I realized they already lined up with my personal beliefs. Well, and the, and the other thing that you're sort of speaking to, I wonder if, if more uh Uh, black Americans in your age cohort are looking around at uh, particularly now at uh, big city America, where a disproportionate percentage of black Americans live around the country and saying, you know, um, I don't know, all my life, it's kind of been in stasis here. We've seen some improvements in some neighborhoods and other neighborhoods have perhaps declined a little bit. But but for our our neighborhoods that are disproportionately uh, minority, particularly black in places like Chicago uh, and Detroit and other cities, it just doesn't seem like we're, we're going anywhere. And uh, it's not like there's been political opposition to the controlling authority. So at some point, don't we have to hold them accountable for what happens on their watch? 
Definitely. We know that most of these cities are Democrat-run cities and have been for a very long time, including the one that I live in. And I noticed that although to some it may seem as if the city is growing, you know, things are being built and our downtown is really booming, the natives here, especially in the black community, are not growing financially or economically. And I think people are beginning to recognize that. We just have different views on the solution. So, you know, because when you are raised in a community and you have your entire family thinking a certain way and all of your friends, it's really hard to get away from that. So, But I think people are starting to see it. We just got to figure out the best way to solve the problem. Uh, what do you think uh, Trump could say or do, if there's anything he could say or do at this juncture, um, prospectively. So there's one thing to talk about uh, before the viral outbreak, the lowest black unemployment in recorded history and and other accomplishments of the administration. And that's all well and good, but that's not where we're at right now when elections are about the future. What What is it that you want to hear from him next week, from the Republican Party next week, as it pertains to so much of the controversy and the uh, the polarization around race in this country at present? What I want to hear from Trump is just more of what he's been given to us. What I appreciate about him is that he doesn't try to pander to the black community. Every election we see Democrats, you know, white liberals in black churches and black schools clapping to, you know, clapping off beat to gospel music or dancing with no rhythm to black music. <laughs> and I don't want to see that. Nobody so wants to I see that. So I appreciate President Trump. You know, he kept it very simple in 2016 when he said to black America, what do you have to lose? I want him to just continue to be the same. I definitely hope he doesn't try to go into the, which I don't believe that's his personality at all. I don't want to see any pandering because we got we had enough of that this week and just previously from the Democrat Party. I'm sick of it. And uh, tell us what The Naked Girls is, this uh, uh, network that you've created, uh, the book that you've written. Give us the gist. The Naked Girls, we're just a group of women who have vowed to live life open, honest, and emotionally exposed. The book, Keep It Naked, A Naked Girl's Guide to Live Life Authentically, is an aggressive self-help book based on my life experiences. So I talk about everything from parenting to dating, religion, divorce, just everything I've had an experience in. I just put it out there and give my open, honest feelings about it. All right. I like it. I, I, I liked your open, honest feelings. That uh, got my attention. So um, uh, keep it up. She is Shamika Michelle. Shamika, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Take care. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. The World According to Brett Favre. Favre, he is uh, profiled in this little Q&A at InsideHook.com. I recently played golf with Trump. Yeah, and uh, talking a little bit about football, of course, as uh, apparently the only professional sports team in America that's going to have fans in the stands when play resumes is the Dallas Cowboys. 
uh, thanks to uh, Governor Abbott and Jerry Jones saying, yeah, well, we can put 45,000 people in the stands and we'll put 45,000 people in the stands if 45,000 people want to come, and they will. I just got informed uh, here in Chicago, no fans at Soldier Field for Bears games. Uh, no surprise there, given the political power structure in Chicago and Illinois, but it's like that uh, around the country. Lunacy reigns, no question. He uh, was asked, would you be comfortable playing in the NFL during the pandemic? I'd play, but that's me. Concussions are a lot more serious, in my opinion, which is actually something Herschel Walker said. We played his uh, remarks earlier in the week. Talking about concussions being a lot more serious, especially long-term from the aspect of what's tomorrow. Today I'm perfectly healthy. Tomorrow I may not remember who I am. You're seeing more and more cases like that. It's going to be interesting to see how this football season shakes out. He was uh, then asked to wade into some of the controversies again. And you'll recall, gotten some, took some heat, gotten some trouble, if you will, cultural trouble. Uh, I teed him up, too, for some of the idiotic things he said about Colin Kaepernick a couple of months ago, where he talked about, you know, he deserves another shot this and sort of giving him a pass on his um, ignorance in the direction of America, in the direction of police, in the direction of support for Castro in Cuba, for goodness sakes. Uh, he was asked about uh, the Kaepernick thing. Can't make everyone happy. In today's world, it's a shame, really is. Social media has dominated the world like it has. Unfortunately, young people believe what they hear and not necessarily what they read. Okay. Assumptions are formed instantaneously, and then it's just so much hate. It's a shame. I try to mind my own business as much as possible. I'm not looking at my phone all day long. I just try to live a normal life as possible. It's just a shame people get branded like they do, and so much of it is untrue. I guess it's the world we live in right now, unfortunately. Yeah, well, then don't laud Colin Kaepernick as a hero for what he's done, and then you wouldn't face that sort of criticism. Just because some criticism in the world is unjust and over-the-top, disproportional, doesn't mean that all criticism is off-base. You're trying to be a voice of reason, then don't make ignorant statements like you did about Colin Kaepernick, Favre. Uh, on playing with POTUS, he has said, as you can imagine, you don't get a lot of free time at the president. No one does. I was uh, honored to be asked, and I caught some grief from the other side for playing with him. But I'll be honest with you, if Obama would have invited me to play, I would have taken him up on it. I respect the office of the president of the United States and was honored to be asked, regardless of what party is present in office. I didn't talk, talk too much business, but he loves golf, and we were more focused on golf. And apparently, they played um, with Rudy Giuliani's son, Andrew, the um, present uh, tour PGA player, Jim Herman, former pga -er. Jason Gore, and then uh, Favre and, and the president. No money exchanged hands. I don't even know if he kept score. The president had to make phone call in one hole, so he missed out in one hole. No cell phones on the course, President Trump. I get he's exempted. Some holes I picked up, and so did he. Oh, no, you got to hole out. I don't even think there was an official score. How can you play with the president of the United States and not have an official score? I mean, did you have official scores when you played against uh, Tom Brady or Peyton Manning or the Bears? Come on, Brett. This is Dan Prof. Thank you for joining us all week on the Dan Prof Show. Please do so again Monday as we uh, prepare for four days of the RNC next week. This is the Dan Prof Show.